Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our class on Brian Wolfmuller's book, Has American Christianity Failed? We left off having just started chapter four. We'll pick up on page 73 here in a moment. We begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen. Okay, on page 73, great big bold type, the biggest on the page. Much of American Christianity is focused on the Christian and not on Christ. That's kind of our, our thesis heretofore, at least our main thought heretofore. And then, of course, this can get transferred, transferred as well to um, much of American Christianity is focused on the church and not Christ. And we talked about some manifestations of that last week. Okay, so just kind of getting ourselves back into the context of this chapter, there has been this idea of you know constantly measuring and testing our own spiritual state as uh, not being a feature of Christianity, but being a bug, <laughs> um, being a kind of symptom of a generally unhealthy theology. And so Christianity then, um, properly speaking, isn't about the Christian, isn't about self-analysis, isn't even about self-progress. It is about Christ and his gifts for us. Okay, now, are these necessarily mutually exclusive? No, no. But we don't want the emphasis on the wrong syllable. We want the emphasis on Christ, who he is. Again, if we think in terms of how Jesus himself teaches this in the Gospel of John, I am the vine, you are the branches. He says, abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. And so, as branches, our focus is on the vine, abiding in Christ, in the things that Christ gives, and then fruitfulness happens as a result of that. If we're severed from the vine, then we bear no fruit. So, even if the goal is, hey, I want to bear much fruit, then the way to that is, abide in the vine. And so that's exactly the dynamic being articulated here. Let's simply pick up after that bold type. Much of American Christianity is focused on the Christian and not on Christ. Wolfmuller continues, this is a sad and dangerous situation. Hope and life and peace are found in Christ, not in ourselves. All true theology begins and ends with Jesus. All true worship begins and ends with Jesus. All true preaching and teaching begins and ends with Jesus. In this chapter, we will explore the doctrine of Christ and try to restore his person and work, his death and resurrection, to the center of our teaching. All right, this next subsection is titled, Prepare to Die. Your end is the law's end, which in the end is Jesus. Jesus insists on being the Savior. Now, quoting from Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. 
This is a simple but profound truth. If Jesus is the Savior, then you must be lost. If Jesus is the Savior, then you must need saving. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? If, if the goal of Christianity is to no longer be lost, if the goal of Christianity is to no longer need saving, then the goal of Christianity is to eventually work yourself away from Christ. <laughs> so that can't be that can't be the right. That can't be the right way. That can't be the right way. Wolfmuller continues, I kept a journal of my prayers through college. I was convinced that the law was keepable and doable, convinced that I could, with God's help, live a life that was pleasing to him. I put myself at the center, and Jesus was on the sideline. Sometimes coaching, but anytime Jesus is on the sideline, that's... <laughs> like those the bumper stickers that say, Jesus is my co-pilot, quick, switch seats! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't let him be the co-pilot. Oh my. So if uh yes, where did I leave off here? Yes, if uh if if Jesus is on the sideline, where is he? Sometimes coaching, sometimes forgiving, sometimes smiling, but mostly shaking his head in disappointment. <laughs> It's a poignant image. Jesus says head coach and he's not happy. <laughs> oh my. I knew I was a sinner, but I didn't know how deep that sin was. I thought I could handle life myself. And this made Jesus my helper, my coach, my trainer, standing at a distance with a disapproving look. Especially, he was my judge. He was not in my thinking and in my prayers, my Savior. I could not have admitted this then, but you could see it in my journal, in my prayers. I was asking for power, not forgiveness. I was looking for victory, not blood. Let me come to you. Let me find your will for my life. Let me serve you. Let me see you. I was striving and grasping for an elusive obedience to God's hidden will. And you can see that in the, in the verbs. Let me come, find, serve, see. Me, 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 and striving, and it's elusive. It's elusive. Like what? It's not concrete. It's it's nebulous and it's uncertain, and that's what he means by uh, this elusive seeking or grasping for an elusive obedience to God's hidden will. Wolfmuller continues. This always ended in failure. Stretching for perfect works meant falling into despair. Yeah. And a similar thing happens too when we think, well, well, God, I'm, I'm towing the line here. Why isn't my life getting better? If you're truly God and, and you're truly Christ and you've truly saved me, then my life shouldn't be going this way. And this is, you know, these are, these are all kinds of spiritual 
pitfalls and traps laid very craftily by the devil. They're based on a kind of wrong theology. And, and ultimately, yes, to generalize, they're, they're intended to land us into one or two large categories. And that's either self-righteousness and the kind of blindness that goes along with that. I, I am pulling it off. I am the super Christian. My life is glorious. Um, everything's great with me. How about with you? Um, or despair. And sometimes it can even be both. Sometimes it can be the self-righteousness on the outside and the despair on the inside. But the despair on the inside is I'm not pulling it off. I don't really get it. I don't have the answers. If all this is true, why is my experience my experience, my life my life? And so then the devil will use these to pry us away from Christ. So there is a great spiritual danger here. We're not just theologically nitpicking. There's a great spiritual danger to losing Christ and falling into ourselves. We're going to fall into pride or despair. And, or some combination of both. Wolf Miller continues, This, though, was a tricky kind of despair. A not quite enough despair, despair. <laughs> I didn't despair of myself. I didn't despair that I couldn't keep the law, only that I didn't keep it. I would fail, and then I'd be at it again, trying, praying, striving, succeeding, failing, weeping, doubting, fearing, singing, reading, trying, trying, again and again and again. Pride was hidden behind this despair. That's an interesting line, isn't it? And that's what I meant by it's kind of, it can be a combination of these things. Pride was hidden hidden behind this despair, the thought that I could do it. I could keep the law. I could bring a smile to God's face. Without even knowing it, I was working to be so good that I didn't need Jesus. Denying the depth of my own sinfulness, I was trying to be my own Savior. This is where the theology of American Christianity brought me the ugliness of pride wearing the mask of despair. This at last is where God's law does its most important work. It crushes us, destroys us, and teaches us despair of self. The law of God should not be the last word. When, now quoting from Romans 3.19, every mouth is stopped, when the incessant attempts to justify ourselves wreck or run out of gas, then the Lord speaks another word. When we come to the end of our pride and ourselves, his voice is full of comfort and peace for us. This word of God is the promise of the gospel, the news of the death of Jesus for you. It is the basic assertion of the scriptures Jesus, the Son of God, is Savior. Okay, so that ties in with the previous chapter, where only when the Bible reveals to us the true nature of our fallen state and our helplessness before, the God, before God's law, the impossibility of being good in the sight of God, then we're prepared to see what he's given us in a Savior. One who makes us righteous in God's sight by pure grace, completely and entirely apart from our works. 
and in fact redefines our relationship with God. Whereas before our relationship with God was one of the law. Am I a good person or not? Am I pleasing God or not? Is, is there enough quid pro quo going on um, that God's going to reward me? We exchange all of that for a different relationship, and that's the relationship not of slaves. That's the slavery relationship, the quid pro quo. Am I doing enough work for you? Am I, am I getting down the checklist? Um, am I going to get a reward? We remove ourselves from that paradigm, or rather, we are removed from that paradigm, and we become sons, an entirely different paradigm. And this, it, what do I mean by sons? Okay, well, I have a son, I have a daughter, my children. They could do anything in the world, and they're still going to be my kids. I'm not going to disown them. I may see that they receive, you know, help, <laughs> learn a lesson, possibly, God forbid, even experience justice. I mean, they're, they're beholden to God just as we all are, and we're beholden to one another as well. Um, and yet, and yet... I would never disown them. My kids are my kids. Completely independent of anything that they do or don't do. That's the sense in which we're God's kids. Baptized and made sons and daughters. God's own child, I gladly say it, as the hymn says. We're God's children. So he won't disown us. So now in this formal sense, in this first sense, are we pleasing to God? Always and ever, he's pleased to have us as his children. And we are righteous. That, that relationship is established on the basis of Christ. He views us as he views his own son. He views us, when he sees us, he sees Christ. He sees us as, as his kids. Okay. Now, if my son does something uh, wrong or rebellious or uh, dangerous, as a father, I, I might... I might get concerned, I might get worried, I might be displeased. If he does something courageous or moral or self-sacrificing, I might also be proud of him and encourage him in that path. I might even reward him. I might even take him out to dinner and say, hey, have an ice cream cone, my friend, nice work. Okay, so what's this secondary aspect? The secondary aspect is sort of the relationship and the guidance and the governing. Now, what have we done in, in viewing these two different components? Like, my son is my son no matter what he does, good, bad, or ugly, right? He's my son, nothing can change that. That's justification. That's justification. That's our standing before God. And that's really what Pastor Wolf Miller's articulating here. Our standing before God is not on the basis of the law. It's on the basis of Christ, the free forgiveness of sins we have in him, the baptism he gives us, this new birth from heaven, new birth of water and the Spirit. We're his children. Nothing takes us away from that. We don't have to constantly be striving and working and inwardly turned. We are outwardly turned to the grace of our Father in Christ Jesus. Make sense? Okay. Now, predicated upon that, based upon that foundational relationship. We love him because he first loved us. We see how wonderful he is, how gracious he is, how, I mean, really, truly, it's, it's just unspeakable, how gracious and merciful he is beyond comprehension. And we want to be like that. We want to be like that. Um, 
I, I know it's the case with my son. Like, there's, I think it's true with every son where you have kind of a good father-son relationship. Sons look up to their fathers, at least certain parts, and they say, I want to be like that. That's how we are with God. We see who he is and how he is. We say, I want to be like that too. So we start imitating him. When I was, uh, when, when James was really little, uh, I'd go out and I'd, I'd mow the lawn. He started off in a, in a backpack on my, on my back and he'd go mow the lawn back there with me, drooling all over my neck, doing whatever he does, his little sun hat. Then when he got big enough, he got his little bubble lawn mower out and he was out there mowing right next to me with his little bubble lawn mower. Uh, he just wanted to be like that. And I think that this is just a nice little picture, a nice little microcosm of how we are. We want to be like God. We want to be like our Heavenly Father. We want to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so in that sense, then we're talking about sanctification. You see how that works? But now what if we, what if we realize that the bubble lawnmower we're pushing isn't really doing much anything? <laughs> What if we realized that we got bored before the lawn was even half mowed with the bubble lawnmower? We went and sat down on the patio. What if we started complaining that we wanted a popsicle before the work was done? You know, do, does God suddenly say, that's it, you're not my kid anymore? No. No. He is pleased to have us as his children. Period. Period. And that's really what Pastor Wolf Mueller is pointing at here. As a result of this, we want to be as he is. And that's, so justification and sanctification. You can see those two different categories put together. Now, great havoc comes when we blur those two categories. And that's really at a kind of a formal level, what's happened in American Christianity is you've got a blurring of justification and sanctification. A blurring of this idea of like, well, I am God's child, but I need to behave like his child or else I might not actually be his child. You see how subtle that is? But the two have been confused. I am his child. I need to behave like his child or I'm not his child. Ooh, this is the perfect confusion of justification and sanctification. Or, or as we would say shorthand as Lutherans, the, the perfect confusion of law and gospel. And this leads to pride or despair. I'm pulling it off. I must be his kid. Or at least today I was. Or Wolfmuller's experience. I'm failing. I'm failing more than I'm succeeding. I'm back at the same old stuff. Maybe I'm not really his kid. Or if I am his kid, maybe I'm the bad kid. You know, maybe I'm the kid he just tolerates because he has to. Um, so you can see how this blurring together of justification and sanctification, blurring together of law and gospel, then ends up with this confusion. I'm his son. Therefore, I must be his son. If I don't act like his son, I'm not his son. And all that then results. Now, that subtle shift of I am his son, that's gospel. Okay. Am I behaving like his son? If so, then I truly am. If not, then I'm truly not. Do you see how the focus then latches on that question? Because God, God's component of it is certain. And because we've engaged in this confusion... We've got a synergism, two things, like God and me meeting together. And then because I'm the only uncertain component, where does all the focus drift to? Like gravity, right to me. Like These are the mechanics of how you get a me-centered Christianity, a, a Christian-centered Christianity. Okay. 
So again, we want to have in our minds this really clean paradigm of God as Father and we as sons, and the two different the two different facets of that, the justification sanctification facet of that. Once we have that in our mind clear, and those clear distinction between sanctification and justification, law and gospel, we're set to be much much healthier in our theology. All right, let me pause there. See if you have any reflections of your own on these things. Um, Otherwise, we will uh, jump up to the top of 75 and carry on. Please. You're describing what happened. I used to belong to a ladies' Bible group, and the lady from our church taught it, and we were very careful always. If we had any questions, it would always go to an elder or the pastor, so we felt like she was teaching it, but we were going to—it was always approved, whatever our lessons were. Well, this woman, life got in, well, life, she evolved and she became a grandmother and had to step down from her role. And a new woman who had just recently joined our church volunteered to take over. And she wasn't of our belief necessarily. She was more American Christianity. Okay. And immediately, and a lot of my friends that used to come with me also had things call them away. So I was kind of sitting there with a new crowd of women. <clears throat> and I can't tell you how obvious it became right from the get-go. She started teaching the class, well, like the way, you know, have you ever heard of BSF and stuff? Or you can't mention, like, pretty much she wouldn't allow us to even talk about how what our denomination believed. She'd shoot that down. Because she was teaching it, she used to lead another kind of a Bible study, right? But this very thing about not measuring up, <clears throat> she'd bring it in the one the very first time she shared in our as the leader, and then you'd hear it from this woman, and and it would have never happened with the other lady because we would have had the more the proper grasp. Mm-hmm. That was. One of the final, that's pretty much that drip. I was already on my way out, but that one just, and I would act, if I tried to say anything, how do I describe what you're trying to describe so beautifully? I, what do I sound like? I sound like I don't care or something. Oh, don't worry about it. <clears throat> you know what, if you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It was just so frustrating. It was really one day I just pretty much stormed out and broke into tears and that was the end. I never went back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I think your story, uh, you know, and thank you for sharing it, it, it articulates, it makes concrete that while these things, you know, if we're, if we're sitting in a, in a Bible class and talking about these things in the abstract, they can seem like, well, they're so, it's so subtle. And these are such small little differences and such small little things. But from that subtlety and from those small differences, um, really, really manifest huge spiritual problems. And ultimately, it's why this class is worth having. It's why this book is worth having been written. Um, these things can lead people outside of the faith. These people can lead people away from Christ into despair or into a kind of pride that says, maybe I don't, maybe I'm a good person, period. Maybe I don't need Jesus. Um, maybe I'm too much of a sinner. I can't be helped. I can't pull it off. I'm, I'm a hypocrite. And oh, by the way, everybody else here seems to be hypocritical too. So Christianity is hypocritical. Um, it all comes from, 
you know, it's a really fascinating thing. When you, when you dig down to the root of false teaching, if you get right down to the root, it's so subtle. Sometimes it's a single syllable difference. But from that false teaching comes an entirely different religion or more existentially speaking, a departure from the faith. So the, yeah, this is a big deal. And this is why doctrine matters. And this is why the emphasis in scripture is even not that we pit these two against each other, but if you had to pick like what's more important, doctrine or life, teaching or practice, it's teaching, it's doctrine, it's these things that absolutely matter because they end up determining practice, they end up determining life, they end up determining everything else. Please. What I was going to say has helped me think about this is that everything is God's work. Justification is God's work. Sanctification is his work because he set us apart now to be made holy. As we remain in the vine, like you say, the work is ongoing. And then it's finally complete when we die. Now he's made us glorified. Mm -hmm. So is that okay? I mean, uh, yeah, thinking that way. What you just said, it sounds great. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Is that why the, the fourth commandment is kind of like father and mother? Then murder, then fifth. What, what specifically is your question there? Um, well, because when I'm looking at the father-son relationship, oh, law and gospel, yes. that's because you, you go the first three are about our relation with God. Then it says honor thy father and mother. Then the next one after that is thou shalt not murder. Mm -hmm. So I, I was wondering why isn't murder up above that? But it, now I can see, no, it yeah. needs to be the father, right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. Because, uh, and, and again, the, the large catechism, the fourth commandment, the large catechism does su such a great job articulating this, but the relationship, because God is father. Before there's time or space or anything else, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we talk about God as Father. Obviously, that's, that's because of the everlasting Son, the two persons of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit being the third. And then when he sets about making creation as a reflection of who he is. Every artist, when you make art, you're reflecting something of who you are. So this is what God does. And so in the relationship between, you know, father and mother as parents in that office of heavenly father, watching over the earthly children as the heavenly father watches over them. That's why. So the catechism says that they are, uh, that God sets parents, the office of father and mother, at his at his right and left hand, you know, at his side. And there is on earth no one higher to us, more deserving of honor or glory, because they represent God on account of their office. Now, obviously, we have all kinds of personal failings and foibles and um, sometimes gross and terrible failings. Um, and yet, that doesn't take away from the glory given to the office. And so, yes, and because this... This is really the, the ground of all life, the ground of the ordering of creation, the ground of all authority then that comes out of that government and church and a fallen world, all of this. It is more foundational even than the protection of life itself. So the fourth commandment truly belongs there um, next to um, even ahead of the, the fifth commandment on murder and adultery and so on. In fact, so much so that in certain, uh, at certain times in Christianity, and, and Lutherans wouldn't be opposed to this at all, you remember the two tables of the law? 
So commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment two, um, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Commandment three, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. These all, these all have to do with, with God. And so that's table one. And then table two have to do with our neighbor. Honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, and so on, all the way through. So first table of the law, God. Second table of the law, man. But at certain times and places in Christianity, the fourth commandment has been placed under the first table because honoring parents is honoring God because in, the most profound, in the most profound and basic sense. Who brought you into this world? Well, God, but through your parents who fed you and clothed you and cared for you when you couldn't. God, but through your parents. And so the office of parents, again, to say nothing of the particular individuals, but Luther does say no matter how, um, you know, bad or how much they failed or even how strange or weird they are, we still owe them that, that respect due to the office, you see. So the fourth commandment is so closely related to the things of God that sometimes it even gets tucked under that first table of the law, the things having to do with God. So yeah, yeah, thank you for that. Um, and there's no mistake that this is like one of the dominant paradigms, if not the dominant paradigm, through which we're to see our relationship with God. And it's so helpful when we're trying to state what's gone wrong with American Christianity and how we begin as God's sons but end up as God's slaves and then end up either proud or despairing. Um, if we if we start as God's sons in Christ Jesus, keep our hearts and minds set on him first and foremost, like the, like the branches to the vine, then in and through him we will, in fact, bear much fruit. We will be sanctified. We will do things that are like he is. We'll love because he first loved us and, and so forth. So you can see the organic relationship of all these things. It's, it's like God knew exactly what he was doing. You know, he didn't just sit down arbitrarily and say, hmm, what should be the fourth commandment? I know. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, any other thoughts on, uh, on these things? All right, let's keep going. Page 75, up at the top, with the, um, where the kind of odd print gets started. This is why the cross of Jesus is the fulcrum of the scriptures. The saving work of Jesus is his death. He is our Savior in his death. He is our Savior on his cross. Every word in the Bible either is either pressing toward or flowing from the cross. It's true. Even when you see him resurrected in the scriptures, there, there, is, there is attention paid to the wounds that remain. When you see him in Revelation, glorified in heaven, having ascended into heaven, he is there and as a lamb standing and yet as one having been slain. Even though he is Christ the risen, he is also, he was always and never ceases to be Christ the crucified. So St. Paul also writes, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Or in the Lord's Supper, um, uh, we proclaim his death until he comes, 1 Corinthians 11. So, you know, there's a lot in American Christianity. Says, well, Jesus is risen. Get rid of the crucifix. Jesus is risen. Stop preaching him crucified. <laughs> no, no. The, the risen one is the crucified one, and these things never cease. 
They never cease. And particularly, we're not going to get rid of Christ on his cross. We're not going to get rid of Christ the crucified because this is the center and source of our salvation. By his death, we live. Okay, so um, every word of the Bible is either pressing toward or flowing from the cross. All of the Old Testament types and promises are building to this horrible and holy crescendo. Jesus in our flesh and in our place. On the cross, Jesus is forsaken by God, Psalm 22, beaten and stricken by God, Isaiah 53, the darkness of God's wrath pouring over him as every ounce of comfort and joy is ripped away. All of this to save you. He drains the cup of God's wrath to the dregs for you. Isaiah 51. Every New Testament book is a preaching of the cross. Paul claimed, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2. Matthew, Mark, and Luke spend one-third of their Gospels recounting the last week of Jesus' earthly life. The Gospel of John has even more. Over half of his Gospel is about the passion of Jesus. Now, that'll rearrange your mental furniture a little, because if you're like me, I don't know where we got this idea, but we got this idea in our heads, is that the Gospels are sort of this balanced treatment of the life and times of Jesus, this kind of biography. They're, they're not. They're not, as Wolfmuller points out, the three synoptic Gospels. Um, synoptic, because they all have the same kind of viewpoint, the same lens. If you've read John, you realize that. John's a wild one. Um, the others kind of are all in the same category. Um, but, but yeah, a, a whole third of the gospel is just the last week of Jesus' earthly life. And in John's, it's over half his gospel is, is really on that last week. So incredible the emphasis you see in the Gospels on the passion of Jesus. All right, so um, let's see where we are. Yeah, so, okay, what are we doing? We're seeing that the centrality of the Scriptures is Jesus. And if that's true, then what's the centrality of the Christian life? Jesus. And how Jesus... Even, even for us, in this sense, again, kind of existentially from our perspective, God is our just judge. We are slaves who cannot please him, who have no place, no rightful place in his house. Jesus comes and transforms that, again, from our perspective. And, and God is transformed from a judge into a father, and we from slaves into sons. Even the shape of our obedience changes from laborious and necessary to free and joyful. Okay, so hopefully you're, you're grasping that um, transition here that Wolf Miller is leading us through. All right, let's move on um, and talk uh, in the next subsection on page 76, Blood from Start to Finish, a book about Jesus. We'll just, um, we're, we're going to jump around here a little bit, I think. The Old Testament is about Jesus. American Christianity, together with almost the entire modern church, reads the Old Testament without the gospel, without Jesus or the forgiveness of sins. American Christianity reads the Old Testament like a Jewish book, a law book. 
Jesus might be in the Old Testament, but he is there in the shadows. This is a cold and dangerous reading of the prophets. We can do better. All right, and then he talks about there being three beautiful, compelling New Testament texts. I don't think he means that that's exhaustive, that teach how to read the Old Testament. So skipping to the next paragraph. The first is John 5. Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. All right, at the time in which Jesus speaks these words, what are the scriptures? What is the Bible, as it were? The Old Testament. So Jesus himself says the Old Testament is about me. And that then affects the way we read all of it. That's where it's not an overstatement at all to say every line of the scriptures, including the Old Testament, lead to the cross or flow from the cross. They're all about Jesus in one way, shape, or form. All right, next, jumping over to the top of 77, and let's just go there to the lengthier quoted section from Luke chapter 24. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now you remember what's happening. This is the road to Emmaus, and um, they don't yet know that Jesus is resurrected and he's walking with them and teaching them. O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, again, these are all that the Old Testament scriptures have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, the Old Testament tells us that not only is the Messiah coming, but the Messiah is going to suffer before entering into his glory. <coughs> Thus ends Jesus' statement, and then in terms of narrative, and beginning with Moses. Those are the first five books, the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them, these disciples on the road to Emmaus, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What a Bible class that must have been. And yet, and yet probably not even as in-depth as what we experience and enjoy, having had 2,000 years of Holy Spirit-inspired, brilliant men um, revealing these things to us. Okay, let's go to the third. Um, we have to drop down past the next paragraph, to the paragraph right in the middle of that page. There's one last text, Wolfmuller says, to consider, and it is even more specific. Peter is preaching in the seaport of Joppa. Summarizing the Old Testament witness to Christ, he says, now quoting, to him... All the prophets bear witness, again, we're talking Old Testament, that everyone who believes in his name receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Wait a minute, if that's what the Old Testament prophets are speaking, to whom primarily are the Old Testament prophets preaching? The Old Testament people. The Old Testament people have their faith in the Messiah, the Christ. In fact, we're going to see this in just a minute, but we can't lose sight of this, that the Old Testament faith is Christianity. This has gotten so skewed in our day and age. I remember um, with a great deal of distaste when I was watching the History Channel. It kind of starting to date me. Maybe I've got to come up with a different analogy. But um, I was watching the History Channel, and they talked about the birth of Christianity. 
Uh, now, first they said 2,000 years ago, and then they, then they trimmed that up and they said, well, but properly speaking, St. Paul came along and he changed everything. So Christianity isn't even from Christ. Christianity is from St. Paul, according to the History Channel, and it's no more than 2,000 years old. Now, since this, I, I've heard this countless times, you probably have too, that Christianity is a 2,000-year-old faith. And we've even got the, kind of got this idea of Judeo-Christianity as if, well, there was the faith of Judaism and then the faith of Christianity. Um, is this in any way accurate? No. No. It's completely misleading, as we're going to see in just a moment, from the very first book of the Old Testament scriptures, God promises to send the, the, his son, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. Who is the faith in Adam and Eve in? This Messiah who is to come, this offspring, and that's technically the language for Christ through much of the early Old Testament, is he's the capital O offspring. Okay. He's the one who is to come. And then as this gets fleshed out, not only is Moses talking about him, not only is the whole family line and history of the scriptures, the family line and history of this Messiah, um, but we see all kinds of types and images of the Messiah. We have King David with all his psalms about the Messiah. We have the prophets, major and minor prophets, all proclaiming the coming Messiah. Guess what all the people from Adam and Eve to the time of Christ believe? The Messiah. They are all waiting for the Messiah. When Jesus shows up and, and people are, you know, he's making proclamations that he's the Son of God and the Messiah, people aren't like, well, what's that? <laughs> Everybody, Everybody's waiting for the Messiah. The question isn't, isn't, are we waiting for the Messiah or not? It's, is Jesus him or not? You see? So the whole Old Testament people are saved not by obedience to the law, not by their obedience to the sacrifices and ceremonies. They're saved in the same way we are. They're saved by faith in Christ. Now, the difference is they're waiting. They don't know his name's Jesus. They're waiting for him to be revealed, but they're trusting in this figure, this Messiah that, Jesus, that God has promised to send. We know now his name is Jesus. But that's fundamentally the difference in our faith. When you're analyzing it from this level, they were looking forward to the Messiah. We're looking back to the Messiah. A little bit more accurately, he was with them the whole time, just not in human form, not in flesh. And so they were looking at him, present tense, and to his incarnation. So, too, we know that he is with us. Where two or three are gathered in his name, there I am. And so, um, this is what he says. And so, um, we, we also don't merely look back to him as if he was some historical figure. He's present tense with us as well. So, we look uh, not only backward, but also present tense, just as they looked present tense and forward. You can see our faith is structurally the same thing. It's faith in the Messiah. This is why God's people of old are justified all in the same way, by grace through faith apart from works. It's why when Paul makes these kinds of statements that are taken to be quintessential Christianity and the History Channel goes, oh yeah, well he just invented it right there. What's he quoting when he's making this case? Genesis! Genesis. He's drawing from Abraham and that whole theology that he finds in the Old Testament. It's a fascinating thing that the apostles don't come and say, 
now that the Messiah has come, he has things, he has invented things for me to teach you that are brand new. No! All the apostles go, now that the Messiah has come, let's go back into the scriptures and show where they talked about him the whole time, right? And now everything that the scriptures have prophesied have been fulfilled. It's fascinating that the authority of the apostles is even based and rooted in the scriptures. If you want proof of sola scriptura, look at what the apostles base their teachings on. It's not thin air. It's not, Jesus told me. It's, look what the scriptures themselves say. Even Jesus does sola scriptura. Remember his temptation in the, uh, in, um, in the wilderness with Satan? How does Jesus respond? Well, as the Son of God, I tell you. Based on my own authority, I say to you. No! What does he do? Right back into the scriptures. Right back into the scriptures. So, um, we see then that the whole of the scriptures are thoroughly Christocentric. And this is one of the places where American Christianity misses this. And um, this actually splinters off in all manner of different false teaching, from dispensationalism of various varieties to uh, uh, even a kind of Marcionite, the God of the Old Testament was this way, and the faith of the Old Testament was this way, and then the New Testament, everything changes and God changes, and all of this is wrong-headed. And then maybe just most subtly this idea that well, the vast majority of the Bible, the Old Testament, is all about being a good person. And then the capstone, the New Testament, is Jesus coming and forgiving the parts that we just couldn't quite be good enough. And so you get this really skewed, warped view that is very subtly enmeshed in, in American Christian minds. We want to, we want to clean all this out entirely, start with a brand fresh, clean room, and then put in the, Put in the furniture, the centerpiece that is no Christ is the source, the center, the ending, the everything, the alpha and the omega of all the scriptures. So far, so good. Hopefully a little bit preaching to the choir here in this room, but if nothing else, it, it should be um, reaffirming and edifying. So, Yes, I believe that that's uh, Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. I came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, is, that, is that correct off the top of your head? Yeah, please do. Thanks. So if you just drop down on page 77, one more thing to point out here, and, and of course I just did, but Wolf Mueller does here. It's worth noting. Um, we're at the uh, last full paragraph. It's a tiny little three-liner on page 77, the bottom of. There is a key Old Testament passage that, if understood correctly, unlocks the gospel in the Old Testament. It is the font from which all the preaching and praises flow. The text is Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium. Okay, Proto-First Evangelium Gospel. That is the first gospel. All right. Now, he just takes us through the context of Adam and Eve and how they fall and everything else. Um, I think that that's very familiar to all of you. If not, I commend the next pages to you. But let's turn to 79 and just cut to the chase. The very top in this kind of gigantic font, I will, God is speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, I, you, you all know me and on the, some of these points. Um, 
I've got a little bit of a hobby horse here I like to get on and, and ride around as fast as I can. Uh, <laughs> we've, uh, we've, we've made generic scriptures that aren't meant to be generic. And insofar as we make them generic on, on one side, a- analyzing the contours of the problem, we make them generic on the other side, analyzing the contours of God's solution. Um, I, I am one to be quite, uh, um, just what do the words say here? Let's be, let's, let's stick right with the words of scripture and not alter them. I will put enmity between you and the woman is utterly profound. Utterly profound. Not I will put enmity between you and the man. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. But it's not what's said. Why is it not what's said? Because something here is being emphasized. Remember how St. Paul says that the man, Adam, was not deceived, but the woman, Eve, was deceived. And immediately we think, wow, I can't hear that. Feminism. I can't hear that. St. Paul must be a misogynist. Okay, let's get rid of these ridiculous ideas. Um, what What is going on here? Paul is indicating to us what the scriptures themselves indicate to us, that there is nuance and and a kind of detail here. What what do we see this enmity between the serpent and the woman? Okay. Well, this is then the high place and the emphasis that we see the scriptures placing on Mary. And if you recall in Revelation 12, for example, the serpent becomes as a dragon in Revelation 12, and he's persecuting the woman, and the woman is the one who gives birth to Christ, and not only to Christ, but to all Christians. You have an icon of the devil and an icon of the church. Okay, So we want to, we want to take a moment and really consider these things. Because the woman was deceived, because there was a special and unique attack upon her, and that attack was primary, God says, I'm going to reverse it in just that way. The woman is going to be the one through whom your conqueror comes. One can even imagine here how God says to the serpent, you didn't go through Adam, you went through the woman? Well, it's the woman you're going to fear then. <laughs> and not only the woman, but the pregnant woman. Now, I learned all of this from, from Luther and then have later found some of this in other church fathers. God knows how to deliver an insult. He has got the devil, this all-powerful being, this serpent and dragon, afraid not of Adam, but of Eve. Not of man, but of woman. And not just of any woman, but a pregnant woman. Now can you see why from the dawn of time to the present, abortion and child sacrifice have been such a thing? Why the devil's all wound up and wants to make sure that no matter how sophisticated your society is, you're going to have abortion. Because he can't stand pregnant women. The pregnant woman is his demise. Every woman in that line that got pregnant, the devil's sitting there going, is that it? 
Is that the one? I'm ready. I'm not ready. Who is it? What is it? And in that anxiety and from that that sheer terror comes hatred. The devil's such a proud and arrogant spirit. We know this from the scriptures. And look at how God humbles him. He'll be afraid of a woman and a pregnant woman at that. And then you will be conquered by her seed. It's odd language. We talked about how already this is incarnational language because a woman doesn't have a seed. But then not only are you going to fear the woman and the pregnant woman, but then it's going to be an infant that conquers you. <laughs> Isn't that great? Here you are. Satan, angel of light, highest of the heavens, proud, arrogant, mighty, wise, all of these things. Guess who's going to defeat you? A little baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Beautiful. Beautiful. So this... um. This is such a beautiful gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman. You are either children of this woman through faith, or you are going to be a member of the brood of the viper. <laughs> Remember how that insult comes up? You brood of vipers. And we think, well, Jesus is really getting after them. That's a that's some harsh language. Um, <laughs> you sons of snakes. Um, what's he really saying here? There's more than just this flippant insult, and it's not a flippant insult at all. He's saying, you are children of the devil. So look at this. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your seed. Who's the your seed? The serpent's seed. And her seed, the seed of the woman. You can picture here Christ and Antichrist, but you can picture here all the unbelievers, the brood of vipers, against all the true believers and children of the woman. So now in offspring, we can see a singularity, Antichrist and Christ, but in, within that singularity is a, a multiplicity, all who follow the Antichrist, all who follow the true Christ. There is offspring of the woman and offspring of the serpent. That's it. That's it. It's a whole paradigm and lens through which to view all of life. And Jesus does. That's why he says, hey, you reject me. You're not children of the woman. You're children of the serpent. You're a brood of vipers. All right. Then what shall happen? He, offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And already we can see then, in the very first, the Proto-Evangelion, the very first preaching of the Gospel, there is in it the cross. We don't know it's the cross yet at this time, but we could guess. We could even guess. I suspect that if we had nothing else, we would have guessed. Because how did... What do you see here? The devil deceived the woman, and so God grabs hold of the woman and says, it's her seed that's going to destroy you. The devil took us out by a tree. How do you think God's going to save us? By a tree. We sinned and fell into death by eating what hung from that tree. How are we going to be forgiven and renewed to life? By eating what hangs from the tree of the cross. So we could have guessed at the symmetry of God even from the start. And if we had nothing else, I imagine the Holy Spirit would have led us in just this way. 
But even, even so, nationed in this text, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Messiah will, you will afflict him. He will suffer. And yet, by the very means of his suffering, he will defeat you. You see the imagery of the, pardon me, this is my foot. This is my heel. All right. This is my serpent's head. This is how I teach it to the kids. Okay. And the very act of crushing the serpent's head, his heel is bruised. See, in the singular act of the cross, the suffering of the heel, the suffering of the Messiah, the serpent's head is crushed. Sin is undone. Death is undone. Eternal life with God is regained. And from that bruised heel, if we want to get a little poetic, maybe even a little silly, um, ouch, that hurt. I'm going to have to lie down for a moment or maybe actually three days. <laughs> but I will rise again. And that's precisely what we see. So even nation in this text is the resurrection. After you bruise your heel, smash your heel, you may be laid up, you may have to lay down for a good three days, but you'll rise again. So we see the death, the resurrection, we see the virgin birth already here. We see the importance and centrality of Christ. And second to that, the importance and centrality of Mary as the answer to Eve. And so all of this is nation right from the get-go. And this is, think of this, this is the font, this is the source, this is the very mouth or beginning of the river. Adam and Eve drink this in. Their faithful children drink this in. This is spread all the way down through Noah. This is why the scriptures call Noah a preacher of righteousness. He's out preaching this gospel. Then the So the whole ancient world prior to the flood is, is basically divided in two those who are waiting for the Messiah and those who reject it, sons of God waiting, daughters of men rejecting it. Okay, You can see already that don't intermarry. Don't intermarry with someone who's not of your faith because you're these two different, you're either brood of viper or, or offspring of the woman. You see, So don't intermarry. That's crazy talk. You're two different species. You're two different kinds of human beings. Everything gets so wicked and so nasty, the flood comes. But who retains the faith? Noah, the preacher of righteousness. And he brings seven others with him on the ark. Reset. What do you think it is? Christianity. It's Noah's faith. It's the faith in the coming Messiah. And so it goes until there's this great sort of denigration of that. And many of the people who are, who are God's people who are supposed to be faithful are no longer faithful. This is why St. Paul, even looking back on the Old Testament scripture, says not all of Israel was really Israel. Because Israel are those who believe in the Messiah. You see how that works? And now what does he say of us Gentiles? We've been grafted into that true Israel because we too now have faith in Christ. We share their same faith. And so now we have joined them as one Israel. Israel proper. Israel not of the flesh, but Israel of the faith. Sons of Abraham, not by biology, but sons of Abraham by faith. Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord, as the children's song goes. So you can see how all of this ties together. Okay, um, suffice it to say that the entirety of the Old Testament, up to the very present, is Christianity. Christianity was the first religion. All other religions are a perversion of Christianity. They're a demonic distortion of Christianity. When the History Channel or anywhere else tells you Christianity is 2,000 years old, you can snicker a little and say, no, no, I'm not sure how old it was, how old it is, but it is, it is 
It has its origin in the mouth of God to the serpent all the way back in Genesis 3, and it has been the faith of God's people ever since, all centered in Christ. All right, that's it for today. I'm sorry I took you a few minutes over. Um, if you do have any questions or comments, we can hang out and entertain those. The Lord be with you.